The readings this evening are from Revelation chapters 21 and 22, starting at the start of Revelation chapter 21, which is on page 1249 in the Bibles, in the pews in front of you or behind you. On page 1249. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone like with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as a crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then we're turning to chapter 22, reading from verse 1, just over the page. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Thank you very much, Ellie. Shall we begin with a prayer? 
when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Saviour's love. Through the storm he is Lord, Lord of all. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you in all your glory this evening. Help us to share with John that wonderful glimpse of heaven. And may it affect the way we live now as we look forward to that great and glorious day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Life's a climb, but the view is great. Who said that? Uh, you're so out of touch. I never thought I'd open a sermon with a quotation from Miley Cyrus, but there you are. <laughs> and as we reach this uh, final couple of chapters of Revelation, we get this great view. We've been through Revelation over 14 sermons and... Um, May I just say well done if you've been with us since November when we started. And uh, congratulations on finally making it. But I hope it'll be worth it uh, tonight because this is a, a fantastic finish to what can be, uh, what's been quite a challenging book in many ways. But one of the major themes of Revelation is that, that life is a climb. Life is tough. Very good, very good. <laughs> Life is tough, but the Lamb wins. If you haven't been here at any of the other sermons in this series, that is the seven-word strap line that sums up uh, Revelation. And if you remember nothing else in a year's time, which you probably won't, uh, life is tough, but the Lamb wins. I'll test you in a year's time, Max. But by way of introduction, I'd like to focus on three areas of struggle that I think probably we all face, most of us will face. And um, if you like uh, taking notes or if you're the kind of person that nods off in sermons and helps to have a sort of little outline where we're going, on the back of this notice sheet, uh, there's our outline. And um, we're looking at these three areas of struggle. The first is this whole area of security. Security in the sense of financial provision. Can I earn enough to pay the rent? Will I have a pension? Will I ever be able to get a down payment for a house? And if I own my house, will I be able to protect it from moth and rust and thieves who break in and steal? But security also in the sense of safety. We spend a lot of time and money installing extra locks and alarm systems and so on. Or we look at that dodgy bloke opposite us on the tube. Or we worry as we check in at Heathrow. We worry about our safety. Also security in the sense of planning for the future. Concerns about my future perhaps a career, or family, or the nation's future, or the world's future. So whether it's uh, financial provision or personal safety or fear of the future, security is a big struggle for many of us. 
The second struggle is with relationships. We are made social beings designed to be in relationship with one another. I'll never forget the first day my daughter returned home from school, aged four and a half. And I asked her to do something very simple, like wipe her feet on the mat or have a bath. I can't, really can't remember what it was, but what I do remember was that she protested, and when I insisted, she said, you're not my friend anymore. What did you learn from your first day at school, darling? I learned that people will reject you. And I learned how to reject others too. She'd never said that before. You're not my friend anymore. I'm glad to say that she got over it. And we are actually friends, which is nice. But sadly, it's not always the case, is it? So people say things like, I wish my son would call me just once a week for a few minutes. Or I wish my daughter would drop by. I'm so lonely. Will I ever find Mr. or Miss Wright? How do I cope in my empty marriage? How do I cope with my husband who won't talk or my wife is, who's too preoccupied with the kids, too tired? And we crave intimacy. And often we'll find it to be an elusive struggle. Apparently, the average Facebook user has 150 friends. And yet a recent survey amongst men showed that 45% of them said that they had no one that was close enough as a friend who they could call up at 2 o'clock in the morning if they needed someone to talk to. And as well as uh, security and friendships, a third area where many of us struggle is the whole area of fulfillment. And one of the reasons why uh, so we spend so much time and money on security and on relationships is because of our constant search for fulfillment and satisfaction. I was reminded this week of a, a famous interview that took place with Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones um, with um, Elle magazine, of all magazines. And it, uh, it came recent, soon after... Uh, uh, the biggest ever Rolling Stones world tour where they'd grossed $80 million. And Keith Richards was talking about Mick Jagger. And um, Mick Jagger, who had houses in um, New York, Richmond, the Loire, Mustique. He's a friend of the rich, titled, and famous, and even royalty. He has had five children by three women. He has fame, money, and influence. Keith Richards says 99% of the world would give a limb to live the life of Mick Jagger, to be Mick Jagger. And the funny thing is that he himself is not happy with being Mick Jagger. And the magazine article concluded, 30 years after the Rolling Stones' most defining moment in song, the one certain thing about Mick Jagger is that he can't get no satisfaction. And for all that he possesses and all that he's done, he tries and he tries and he tries and he tries. So we struggle with security, with relationships, and with fulfillment. 
And you're probably thinking, get on with it. Where does Revelation fit into all this? Well, it is is a book written for struggling Christians. The two major struggles that they face, which encompass these struggles we've looked at, are tribulation on the one hand, uh, the hardships of life, and particularly in the first century, the persecution and opposition that Christians faced. And also, the trivialization of life. We saw the tribulation when we looked at chapters 12 to 14, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And then we were reminded of the trivialization of life when we looked at chapters 17 and 18, and we looked at Babylon, the great city, but likened to a prostitute, seeking to entice the faithful away with her alluring charms. And we too live in a world full of trivial fripperies, just read the Evening Standard. Read it all. Read the, the adverts. Read the supplements. Read that, I can't remember what they call it, is it London Life? And you really feel like you're missing out, don't you? When did I last get invited to a party like that? Ever. Or flick through the TV for a couple of hours. All the channels. And we see we live in a world marked by trivialization. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And if you remember, the word revelation, or the Greek word apocalypse, means that a curtain is being drawn back to reveal something. And what John is shown in chapters 4 and 5 is a picture of Jesus, triumphant, on the throne of heaven. And then in chapter 6, we see all sorts of famine, plague, pestilence and oppression, war and death. So that by chapter 6, verse 10, the people cry out, How long, O Lord? It's a cry we often read in the Psalms as well as God's people go through hard times. How long, O Lord? Deliver me, Lord. But the message of Revelation is that God hears that cry. And in the passage we're looking at this evening, he answers that cry. How long, O Lord? Chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. One of the great incentives in Christian living is to know that Jesus is coming back and that when he comes, there will be a perfect society. So if you were here for the chapters 17 to 20, you'll remember it's pretty bleak reading. That's why when we come to 21 and 22 tonight, it's particularly good. Life is tough, but the lamb wins, and that's what we're seeing tonight, and how we too can share in that victory. And in these two chapters, John is given three visions of this wonderful new creation, three pictures of heaven, if you like, the holy city, the bride, and the garden. And they all symbolize in different ways what heaven has in store for the Christian believer, and also how each picture deals with the struggle that we go through 
So the first picture is the holy city in chapter 21. And the emphasis here is on security. So chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem which is also known as Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem is a symbol of security and safety. And at the heart of Jerusalem is the temple. And in the heart of the temple is the Holy of Holies, where God was uh, symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God in the temple. It's a place of safety and security. So in Psalm 48... We read, walk about Zion, go round her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. Then in Psalm 122, a famous psalm about Jerusalem, it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. Jerusalem is meant to be a place of security. Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And here in Revelation chapter 21, and particularly verses 10 through to the end of the chapter, John emphasizes what a secure city we have as the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem, if you like, the new Jerusalem. Do you see verse 11? It shone with the glory of God, with precious jewels, Verse 21 says the streets were paved with gold. It's a place of splendor. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And verse 16 tells us that the walls, well, the, 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 sorry, that the city, city was 12,000 stadia long and wide and high. This is a vision, okay? It's not kind of real, but that's how... So it's like here to Moscow, square. In fact, cubed. And the walls all have gates. So it's utterly secure. Totally secure. And the reference in verse 12 to the 12 tribes of Israel reminds us of the uh, nucleus of the Old Testament people of God. And in verse 14, the 12 apostles, the nucleus of the New Testament people of God. In other words, the holy city is not just a secure place, but it's complete with God's people safely inside. It's a place of security. All God's people will be there. Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew chapter 6, Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, 
but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And perhaps it's good for us to ask ourselves that question, where is my heart? Is my heart in heaven? Is that where I'm focused? Or am I caught up with all these things that bother us in this life? Heaven is a place of security, the holy city, perfect, beauty, solid, sure. Life may be a climb, but what a view as we look out on this wonderful, massive, safe city. The second vision John has of the new creation is that of the beautiful bride. And the emphasis here is on intimacy. That search for a relationship is ultimately fulfilled in heaven. Back in chapter 19, verse 6, do you remember we have our old friend, the Hallelujah Chorus? Hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And it then goes on, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. That's what the Hallelujah Chorus is all about, that the wedding of the bride has come. And the bride, we see in verse 9 of chapter 21, is the wife of the Lamb. And the bride is meeting her husband. Chapter 21, verse 2, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now we might say, yes, of course, the Christian is already in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. True. We can also say the Christian already has Christ by his Holy Spirit. True. The Spirit is with us. We were thinking about that last, last weekend. Interestingly, the word used um, in Ephesians chapter 1 for the Holy Spirit is guarantee. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. And that word is often used for an engagement ring. So it's a bit like the Holy Spirit is like God's engagement ring, reassuring us of his presence with us. But if we think it's cool to have an engagement ring, wait till you get the wedding ring. It's so much better when we will see him face to face. The wonderful thing about the Bible is it's completely un unhung up. Sorry, I haven't put that very well. The Bible has no hang-ups about sex. It's quite uninhibited in its references to sex. And it often uses the marriage metaphor as an image of God's intimate relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for Israel in bluntly sexual terms. If you don't believe me, read the book of the prophet Hosea. In the New Testament, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ sees the church as his bride without wrinkle or blemish. And Paul quotes there from Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. And he goes on to say, this is a profound mystery and I take it to mean Christ and the church. 
So when the Bible is trying to explain to our finite little minds how close and intimate God's relationship is with his people, it can only use the the language of marriage and the metaphor of the sexual union. You can't get closer than that. That is why sex is so special and should be kept for marriage. It's so intimate. And this intimacy is reinforced in chapter 21, verse 3, by the reference to the covenant. I heard a loud loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The covenant expressed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this glorious relationship is underlined by emphasizing some of the things that will be absent from heaven. Do you see in verse 4? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Someone said there'll be no hearses, no heartache, no hankies, and no hospitals in heaven. And as we struggle with difficult relationships, bereavement perhaps, loneliness, disappointments, longing, frustration, what a comfort to have this promise of a relationship of perfect intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Life may be a climb, but what of you? Our third vision of the new creation is the garden, and we now move to chapter 22. And the emphasis in the garden is of joy, and a a joy particularly in a restored relationship with God. We move from the city, the city is now sort of in the dream, the vision has been transformed into a garden with, verse 1, the river of life, the tree of life, verse 2, and the throne of God, verse 3. Now, my guess is that there aren't many gardeners here, partly because it's very much a middle-aged occupation, and this is a younger congregation, but also because probably for most, most of us, the window box is about all we could possibly imagine uh, as a kind of our own London garden. But uh, I think we'd probably all understand the kind of concept of a beautiful garden, and I should think most of us appreciate it, even if we actually much prefer if someone else looks after it for us. Lucy and I spent a very happy uh, hour or so in Kew Gardens yesterday. And um, let me just say, May in England... It's hard to beat, and Kew Gardens is one of the best. Just really confirming my middle-aged status here. But here in the new creation, in chapter 22, we have uh, the river in verse 1 with crystal water flowing from the throne down the main street, a sort of symbol of God's grace reaching out to all, all citizens uh, it reaches. Secondly, the crops 
uh, and, and the tree of life, verse 2, where the hungry may eat to their heart's content. And did you notice that the harvest happens not once a year, but every month? A place of prosperity and joy. After the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the man had been banished from the garden. And the tree of life was a no-go area. But here, in the new creation, the ban is lifted. And then we have the throne of God, verse 3, where, verse 4, we will see him face to face. In the Old Testament, no one could see God and live. He was so pure and holy. In the New Testament, we have access to the Father through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, by faith. But one day, in the new creation, we will see him face to face. What joy. And all our longings will be fulfilled. We may struggle now with satisfaction and that elusive search for fulfillment, but one day we'll be able to say with the psalmist, all my springs of joy are in you. The Bible begins with a beautiful garden and the man and the woman are chucked out. Paradise lost. The Bible ends here with another beautiful garden and God's people are welcomed back. Paradise regained. Do you see verse 3? No longer will there be any curse. Adam and Eve were cursed in the garden but now no longer. So we have three wonderful visions of the new creation. The holy city with its emphasis on security. The bride with its emphasis on intimacy, relationship. And the garden with its emphasis on uh, joy. And particularly the fulfilled, restored relationship with God. Life is a climb, but the view is great. But the Bible doesn't leave us with just a great view. It actually leaves us with a promise. Look at verse 7 of chapter 22. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. He repeats it, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. And verse 20, the penultimate verse of the whole book. Yes, I am coming soon. The Bible repeats things that it thinks are important. It doesn't have um, bold font. It doesn't have size 98 font. It just repeats itself. And there are various things that are repeated. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Coming soon. So we need, just as we finish, three things. To wait patiently we may think that 2,000 years is a rather long time to wait and Jesus got it wrong when he said he is coming soon but I don't think what he meant was necessarily I'm coming the next few minutes the next few days I think what he might have meant here was that in God's kind of agenda God's calendar God's diary there are various things that he had to do God's to-do list and the next thing on God's to-do list is to come back he used to have quite a long to-do list. Send my son to earth. Well, that's happened. Tick. 
Jesus crucified, tick, that's happened. Jesus risen from the dead, tick, that's happened. Jesus ascended to heaven, tick, that's happened. Send the Holy Spirit to help the church get on with the job, tick, that's happened. Next thing on his to-do list, come back. That's all. I'm coming soon, he says. And we must wait patiently. It may seem long, but he will come back. Second, we must wait obediently. Do you see verse 9? He said to me, do not, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Verse 10, do not seal it up. In other words, read it. Verse 11, let him who is holy continue to be holy. Let him who is right continue to do right. Sure, there will be some who determinedly do wrong, who are determinedly vile, verse 11. And the uh, revelation makes no bones about the fact that there will be a judgment. But for God's people, the encouragement here is to wait obediently. If we're following Christ, if we're walking with Christ, if we're looking forward to joining the Lamb as his bride in the holy city and the beautiful garden, we must wait obediently. Finally, we must wait expectantly. Look at how the bride responds to Jesus' statement that he's coming soon. Do you see verse 17? The spirit and the bride, the bride is obviously the church, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And verse 20, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And the church responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And as we, metaphorically speaking, look out from this mountaintop, as the curtain has been drawn back and we get this fantastic view of the foretaste of heaven, and all the glory that will be ours. That should be our prayer. We should be saying, yes, I want some of that. God, please help me to keep going through the struggle, whatever my struggle is. Help me to keep going. I yearn to be in that city. I yearn to be in that garden. I yearn to be in a completed relationship with that saviour amen come lord jesus let's just be still for a moment and make that prayer our own Jesus, be the center. Be my hope. Be my song. Come.
Lord Jesus. Amen.